Welcome to Career in Ruins, where this week we're back in the saddle. How you doing, mate? Yeah, very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Um, I must admit, I'm really happy to be back in the podcasting saddle. Um, I know we did a special a few weeks ago, but it feels like it's been a while since we've done a proper career in ruins, and we've got a delightful one ahead today. I think isn't it exciting to be back? It's been well, I, I, it's been almost a year, I'd say, for a, a typical career in ruins episodes. Obviously, we've had some CBA specials, and we had that that one with um Stony Brook University last week but um it's good to get some some fascinating and engaging and interesting professionals um back talking to our listeners and and sharing their career in ruins but it's been a long old year Derek with with lots of highs and a few lows but you, you got any highlights you want to cover before we uh, before we proceed I, I I would say it has been a year of highs and lows and I I I was pondering this on my way home I just got home from work driving through a storm and I, I, I was listening to actually one of my favourite podcasts on the way home, which is, uh, um, I'm going to name drop it, <laughs> other than Career and Ruins, obviously. I'm going to name drop it because it's on to its last episode next week. And it may be a bit sad, but it's called Reasons to be Cheerful. Mm-hmm. And I've been been following that for a few years now. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to get into podcasting in the first place, because it was just nice to listen to something that offered a cheery slant on world events and world news. Um, but for those of you that don't know it, one of the, one of the hosts on the podcast is um, Labour's Ed Miliband, who's facing a possible career change in the near future, so they're <laughs> they're wrapping up the podcast. Um, but I've always enjoyed the, the concept of reasons to be cheerful, and I think I think in the absence of that podcast, we need to bring it, Lawrence. We need to we need to be the cheerful ones. We need to maintain as much joy as we can, and. It has. It's been an up and down year, as you say. Um, I mean, even just turning on the news at the moment um, can send the, the cheeriest person into a state of deep, deep gloom. And personally, I've had a, a few few rough spells over the last few months. I got trapped in a flood for a few days, all sorts of various um, climate crisis related chaos. But I've also had some personal reasons to be cheerful. Like I got a promotion this year, which was really nice. I'm now an associate professor, which, is, uh, which is very la-di-da. Um, we got to talk to the lovely, lovely people at Stony Brook University, and that's been an absolute highlight of the year. If you guys are listening, hello, and thank you again for having us. Yeah. The, one bit we had to unfortunately cut out of that podcast, we had a question at the end about how to go about changing hearts and minds of particularly senior academics, and the, the enthusiasm and the will to make positive change to the world that came through chatting to those guys was such a nice thing and it gave me huge amounts of hope for the future um one other thing that's giving me lots of joy at the moment is someone seems to be randomly leaving small plastic ducks on my door at work (laughs) um i'm starting to build a collection of them i don't know where they're coming from or why but they are appearing and it makes me very happy and we've got a huge and exciting series coming up on career and ruins so for me despite the fact my favorite podcast is winding up there's lots of reasons to be cheerful how about you lawrence 
I mean, this has been an incredible year for me. I can't complain. I, I, I feel very fortunate to say that I've had no poor luck in terms of um, every, everyone's healthy, everything's gone fine. But um, in terms of achievements, I've just been I've just been lining them up and ticking them off. So I got got my PhD viva done. Not for sure. Got my corrections done. I got married in a, in between the middle of that um, to the fantastic Joe Shaw, who won't be listening, but she's incredible. Um, <laughs> Um, and also somewhere in there, I spent five weeks in the South Pacific and I got to see some incredible archaeology. I got to uh, work with many people um, who have been on the podcast, like Andy Brown and Josie Hagen. I got to see them in New Zealand. I got to see Francisco Torres, who's the um, the archaeologist from Rapa Nui. Um, and also working with Colin and Jane, uh, so Colin Richards, Jane Downs in in um, from University of Highlands and Islands, and then we got to have that bonus career career in ruins episodes with with Moira, who was in charge of the museum on Nui. So great to be working with good friends, incredible academics um, in incredible areas, and then um, yeah, and I get to go and see some of the most incredible archaeology. Be privileged to be shown and record some of this most incredible archaeology I've ever seen. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good year, but we haven't mentioned the uh, the time team shaped elephant in the room yet. That the other fun thing we've been doing is more and more time team. You and I have just spent a week filming in the woods, um, mm-hmm. which was a tremendous time. We got to do a project very close to my heart on one of our own projects, which more on that coming soon. But also we got to spend some lovely time with our dear, dear friend, Gus Casely Hayford, who is joining us today. Hi, Gus. <laughs> Lovely to see you both, two of my favourite people. By way of introduction to those of you who don't know, Gus is a curator, cultural historian, broadcaster and lecturer, director of the V&A East and formerly the director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art in Washington, D.C., He's got an OBE, so our second OBE on the podcast. We're moving in very high society now. But that was for services to arts and culture, and I must say, well-deserved. And he is, of course, the brilliant new presenter of Time Team. And having just done a little bit of presenting with you on your project, Lawrence, I can say he is an absolute inspiration and mentor to me. So I'm so happy to have him joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. You know, I'm a huge fan of you too. So it's just it's just wonderful to join you this evening. Oh, it's, it's it's lovely to have you here, Gus. And I should say, um, it's it's nice to see how much of a pro you are, having seen Derek the last week, because the, the potty mouth that comes with that guy when he gets his lines wrong versus <laughs> yourself, you managed to make it look a very easy process. <laughs> I, I must admit, a very, very newfound. Not that I didn't respect you before, but an, an increasingly newfound respect. Oh, my, no. my, the inner frustration that bubbles out of me audibly is quite <laughs> um, unfortunate, particularly when people edit it into a highlights reel and send it back to you. Thank you, Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> anytime anytime <laughs> but Gus it's I, I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to the podcast in the past but we've got a quite clear structure and the the first bit is the bit I'm most interested to hear to be honest from you and what we want to understand is your career in ruins so what where you started from the the routes you took um which the the, the decisions you made which which led you to the, these fantastic heights that Derek highlighted just five seconds ago um well, I, in all honesty, I've had no plan because every time I've had a plan, it's just always ended. I mean, it's just never ended in the way that I hoped. And so um, more than anything, I think I've got to where I am today through through lack and, and just amazing generosity of some very lovely people. But from, I mean, from my very earliest memories are of 
growing up in a family we, we i grew up in south london and grew up in a in a period in which as an immigrant family that um we felt very unusual and um my parents um they came from west africa my father from ghana my mother from sierra leone and we settled in in tooting which is a bit of south london which is very multicultural today but in that period wasn't and um they were determined to give us the very best of starts on fairly modest means and what they invested in um was just amazing support for us in terms of 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 educational opportunity that they created wonderful libraries and they would encourage us in all of our various pursuits and i'm the youngest um in i have uh, three other siblings um and just watching my siblings just fly in the various areas in which um they showed talent and my parents really support them and even though I wasn't certain what it was I wanted to do, I could just tell from a very age, early, early age that just application of how it could be transformative. And one of my very earliest memories was um, it pouring with rain and laying on a radiator and my eldest brother coming in and sitting down on the floor just um, beneath, beneath me and me gazing over his shoulder as he opened a school exercise book and just began to draw and he was from the very youngest age someone with incredible talent and it wasn't a party trick it wasn't something that uh he'd um he'd really learned but just innate incredible talent and um I just thought I would love to acquire some area some talent like that to replicate just what seemed to be almost like magic someone who could conjure on a page something that appeared to have life and um from that point on i i tried to teach myself how to draw and paint but more than that i tried to um, read as much as I could about about art and about culture. And I was given um, a copy of Gombrich, uh, The Story of Art, and a Marina Vesey book on, called, I think it's called The History of Art, two books for, for, for my birthday. And I read those until, until the, um, the, the actual kind of, the pages began to kind of fall away from the spine and I knew passages off by heart. And, um, and then, I think it was my sister who said, you know, you can actually go and see some of those objects, that they're not just in books, that they actually, you can actually get on a bus and you can go and have a look at some of those. And so one summer holiday, I must have been about, I don't know, 10 or 11. I got on a bus with my sister and we went up to the British Museum and we just saw these, we, being in the presence of truly glorious things and it just I mean it just was transformative the idea that some of these things were hundreds of years old but some of them were thousands of years old and that sense of not just being able to read about them not just being able to see them in print the image of them but being able to be in the same in the same space in the atmosphere within which such glorious things were created that that was just transformative of me and 
um, in various ways, that particular summer of visiting British Museum and then um, Tate, as it was then, um, there was only a single one, um, uh, National Gallery, it made me both understand what it was I wanted to do in terms of working in those kinds of spaces amongst objects like that, but also determined to try to take those stories beyond those spaces and to make them connect with with people who were like me, who felt like that sort of those sorts of um, museums were a million miles away from where they began their journeys. Thank you, Gus. Um, and th- I mean, there's so so many things to unpick from there. And to, and I I particularly like your well, you you said you're incredibly lucky. And um, often we say on this podcast that you you make it your own luck. And I think actually there's something else you said in there, which is about application. And I think mm. that's the crux of it, isn't it? If it once you get your passion and your interest, or you you, you whether it's reading a book so much that the, uh, the the pages fall apart, or that you rewatch a program a, a hundred times, or whatever it may be. Um, that ability to identify what you're going to plough all your interests and your passions into is, is is where making your own luck perhaps starts to 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 drop into it. But certainly, there there's everything's half chance, isn't it? Um, and and yeah, and the, what what what's provided to us, it's whether you you you'd, you're able to to advance on that or not. But um, that that's such a lovely introduction. So so what with regards to that passion and that interest that you 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 developed as a, as a young child where did you how did you advance that how did you implement that passion to to further it into a career I, I'm not a natural academic um but um I mean one summer um um I mean where we grew up in South London it was kind of it was I don't know it felt a million miles away from anywhere and um one summer uh, my aunts came from from, from Ghana, and um, they bought with them huge suitcases. Um, and when they opened them, and this was kind of in the time when you could actually bring all sorts of things into Britain, kind of without sort of uh, you know um, fear of customs stopping you, and they were full of fruit and glorious things that I'd never seen or tasted before. But also, they brought with them incredible fabric um amazing um uh pieces of cloth some of it very very old and um they would put a piece of cloth out on their lap and they would tell the story of this cloth and that i think for many people who um who come from west africa they'll recognize this as 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 something that might connect them to um their own families and history and that cloth was the connective tissue that people would gather around a piece of cloth and they they would use it as a mechanism for 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 telling stories that this was a piece of cloth that would was lay on a coffin during a wake and you could still see the kind of the candle wax that had trapped the the cobalt blue beneath the surface of it a generation ago and it's still incredibly vivid and even though this piece of cloth was was faded and was and was uh, had been repaired a hundred times you could tell in the stories all of the ways in which it had been loved and had been brought out and been 
and, and, and actually been invested in. And that sense of material holding stories, but of people being able to animate that material was really intriguing to me. And the, the connection between the way in which an object can feel um, beautiful, but full of clues, but then how someone can actually animate that object, bring it back to life, was really, really powerful. And so one visits museums and you see things and you read the caption, you look in a book and you read the accompanying text, but there's something different about when someone holds a piece of cloth that, you know, may have been part of a wedding gown that has now kind of, um, you know, completely given up its kind of material um, uh, 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 integrity to time. But somehow just in this tiny little piece of cloth, you can feel a connection back to that time. Or maybe, you know, as we had in those days that there were, you know, bits of, um, of, of uh, of cloth that were were used during dances and you could still smell the kind of the charcoal smell in in the and these aunts knew how to weave these stories that would take you back connect you to places that you'd never been in ways that made you feel like those stories were yours and what i was determined to do i mean i i did pretty badly at school, but I felt I wanted to invest my energies in trying to animate some of the sorts of stories that for many marginal or minority communities connect them back to places that they may never have actually been, that give them the sense of dignity that can come from having really powerful understandings of your heritage that can give them those histories back. You know, that Hegel very powerfully said that, um, you know, that Africa was a place without history, without heritage. And, you know, if, if you know, you are a child of, of, of African, someone who's come from um, any community with a connection to Africa, you'll have an understanding of, of how that, enlightenment vision of peoples of African descent has impacted our understanding of race and um, and identity. That, you know, you go into a museum, go into the British Museum and look where the Africa collection is. It's in the basement. You know, that they will extract Egypt and they'll place it elsewhere. But this kind of dislocation of Africa from the rest of the world, before it was in the British Museum, it was in the Museum of Mankind with other cultures from the global south, somehow saying that these sorts of people are different, that they don't kind of warrant the same level of respect or an understanding that, um, that means that where we don't know about these things, that we step back and we and we accept our ignorance. Instead, what we do, we we did with African history is that we presumed it was primitive. In the times when I grew up, it had the label of primitive art. And one of the things I was determined 
to do was to find the ways of telling those stories that could fill that void so that all of the sorts of beautiful stories that my aunts would tell would hopefully be there for future generations to fill the gap in what felt like um in what felt like a really kind of appalling way of presenting some of the finest material culture and art in the world and so even though i've never felt particularly academic it drove me absolutely drove me to to find the ways of of despite failing huge numbers of exams dis, despite not being academic to get the qualifications so i managed somehow to get you know a phd to um um but then hit a brick wall you know came out of so as good phd feeling i wanted to conquer the world but they're just simply were not jobs there were not jobs and so i the, the way in which i've got to where i am is absolutely taking the long way round and if anyone out there is finding it tough and thinking you know i'm in a cul-de-sac and it's not working i've been there with you i promise you and sometimes i've had to back out of cul-de-sacs and retrace my steps i've worked in departments in museums where I was more qualified than my boss's boss. Uh, but bide your time, be patient, do not give up. Keep your eyes on that thing that you feel is going to make a difference, which isn't about you, but which is about making a difference. And I think that is the thing, is that because I felt such a burning passion to... To, to to change those histories, to shift thinking. A lot of time when I was broke, when I went months, sometimes many months without work, I did not give up. I did not give up. And you know, I faced so many in the way of 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 closed doors, of you know, contracts being terminated. It's just so many in the way. Of, of obstructions, but very slowly, incrementally, I managed to find the opportunities to build a reputation. Um, uh, and I began to present television programs alongside it. I worked um, phenomenally hard um, and began very, very kind of gradually to get one or two breaks in the museum sector. Yes, you, you you mentioned very early on about the the innate talent of your siblings and the inspiration that was to you. I don't think we've ever had a guest on the podcast where I become so utterly absorbed in what you're saying that I lose the ability to respond and talk. It's, I, I, could, <laughs> I could literally listen to you all all evening. It's so lovely to hear and you you articulate the the challenges of building a career in such a, a beautiful way. Um, I, I I must admit before before we chatted today, I, I delved into the uh, the world of Wikipedia to just uh, to check a few facts. Um, not like if my students are listening, we don't advise such things, of course. Um, 
but I must admit, you've got one of probably one of the longest Wikipedia pages of anyone I know. Certainly, those that I haven't helped write, Lawrence. Sorry about that again. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there, there's so much in there, and I, I I plan to kind of pick out one or two things to kind of ask you about in your career. But what struck me as you were talking then that so many of the the roles you fulfilled or the elements of your career that's kind of built this 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 whole is all united by that making a difference and affecting change and being in a position where you can drive change and I, I that's what strikes me about the whole however accurate or inaccurate wikipedia is the 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 thread that runs through it is being in a position to drive and affect change and it's it's genuinely inspirational to see it one of my favorites and I, I i love i love a painting um and being a jury member on the national art competition for example that must have been wonderful but there's so there's such a list of uh, amazing things you've been a part of I, I don't really know where to start but i think i'm intrigued as to maybe this is a, a selfish intrigue um but how you managed to make the jump into things like television how did how did you um transition from museums to tv well when my, part of my phd was and i'm very from that very early age see you know fabric textiles which are you know in material culture some of the most fragile that these are things which don't usually survive and that you and and the area of africa that um my parents came from West Africa, that the environment there, hugely humid and very, very, um, uh, very, very tough on on, on uh, material culture. And people invest so much in preserving fabric. And um, one of the things that I, I wrote my thesis on was on the flags of the people who live on the coastal region of Ghana. These are the Fanti people. And they have created this absolutely gorgeous tradition of creating these flags to, to um, signify particular families um, and particular towns. And they are enormously innate, uh, uh, ornate and, um, uh, and, and detailed, and they are applique. And once a year, they will fly these flags and because it's a coastal region it's very very windy and you can wander through these towns and there will be hundreds of these flags silks um and cottons and they are diaphanous because the colors that they choose are exquisite and the light is so pure and you walk through these towns and the people they they drum and they libate and they have flag dancers who dance with these flags and um, the flags themselves tell the stories of origin, they tell the stories of continuity and what they're aware of is that these flags are ephemeral, that they fall apart and so they repair them over and over and over again and the idea is that history, narrative is fragile and you need to invest as a community in keeping it alive. So you repair those flags, that you invest in your history as a community, as not just as a marker of respect, but to understand where it came from and where you sit within it. And it's a powerful way of linking old with young and linking people back to the histories of origin. And so I wrote my PhD, part of it, 
on the tradition of these flags and how important they were. And in fact, one of them sits on the wall behind me in, in my study here. And what the, the South Bank show, which um, I don't think exists anymore, but in my childhood was the big arts show presented by Melvin Bragg um, uh, on, on um, LWTI TV. And um, Melvin Bragg presented every single um, South Bank show, usually with a big star, Clint Eastwood, you know, who would be interviewed about his latest film. Um, but on this one occasion, I think it's one of the very few, and it ran for many, many decades of South Bank show, they gave it over to me to tell the story of these flags, of this tradition that was enormously fragile, but just exquisite. And I used it as an opportunity to talk about the fragility of narrative and how peoples of African descent have fought so hard in the face of so much prejudice and so many challenges to hold on to their narratives. And yet, despite all of that, we don't teach it, we don't celebrate it. In fact, if anything, we reinforce the idea that Africa is a place without history. And so I told this story um, and very, very lucky to have a platform that was on you know, one of the most watched TV channels in that period. Um, and I loved it. I loved the process and the cathartic opportunity to speak about something that I cared about. And the response was massive, mainly amongst people who felt isolated and marginalised like me, who felt that their stories weren't being told. And that made me think, I want to tell, to continue to tell those stories. So I've made TV programs on fashion. Um, I've made programs on, on, on the Tate collection, on landscape art. I've made programs on architecture. I've made all sorts of different programs, but all of them are connected to this idea of making history heritage but particularly material things giving them back to people so rather than the reification of things and putting them in cases rather than writing those histories that feel incredibly abstract this is about you and i and our stories of our connection to things that matter how can we actually animate those stories in ways that really speak to the rest of us. And I've invested most of my career in trying to tell those stories. And so I've done radio and I've done television and I've written, but always to be invested in that. And so I continually teach and I will teach in schools and I will teach in universities. I will lecture and I will um, make television, but always it's with the idea of giving people back the sense that history is theirs to write, to enjoy, to make, you know, that it's not something which is about someone pontificating at a lectern. This is about what you can do to discover 
to recover your heritage. And so for me, the work with Time Team, recovering material stories that have been lost and then finding through deduction, the connective tissue that can help us to understand who made this, who owned this, why? The reasons why so often that these things were loved and then if one's working in a space that was domestic or a burial site, the reasons why they came to be there. I mean, that those are gorgeous stories that I think everyone can relate to. And that is for me where history really comes alive. I mean, I have professorships, I have PhDs, I've written books, but that is what it's about, is how can we make history come alive? And I think in holding, touching, animating material things, I think that for me is where it's at its most powerful. Within the podcast, we do have uh, three three standard questions that we like to ask our, our, our guests. And, and the first of those three is of the incredible career that you've had to date. Is there one particular project that you're particularly proud of? I think what I'm doing at the moment, um, I'm the director of the Victorian Albert Museum East, which is building a whole new national museum in East London. And it's a bit of London which hasn't traditionally been well served in terms of national museum um, uh, opportunity. And this is to build a collection centre, which is like the size of a football stadium. And it'll hold 280,000 objects, which tell the story of human creativity across 5,000 years. And um, it's glorious. It's a glorious space, open and um just with the collect, rather than you coming in and pressing your nose up against the glass of a case, we've created a space designed by Liz Diller, a New York-based architect who's absolutely brilliant. She's carved a, a kind of a, a space right in the centre of the collection that you can stand in with glass floors and glass balustrades. So rather than you looking into the collection, you are in the very centre of it. Below you, above you, all around you, you are surrounded by the most glorious objects. And we have taken that visual, that visual cue that she's created in the vision of the building of complete and utter access into everything that we're doing. So people can come in and they can engage with the objects. This isn't about kind of distance and glass and and cases. This is about you having that material contact, like those aunts who brought glorious things in for you to engage with. You can come into our spaces and we want to create the space where you can actually touch the object. And that's not just about museum experts and academics, that's everyone. If a young person doing their homework wants to come in and use our spaces and engage with our collections, they will be as welcome as someone who's coming, who's doing PhD research. This is about giving the collections which are public back to the public. So 
I'm really excited about that. And as part of that, I've committed to visit every single one of the more than 100 schools in the area that surround our, our space, taking our objects into those schools to so that more than 100,000 young people will, I hope, engage with our collections before we open in 2025. And then we're also building a new museum alongside the storehouse, um, which will allow us to animate those stories through amazing exhibitions and displays. Um, we're really excited. It's good. It's absolutely gorgeous. And just yesterday, we had the Mayor of London down to, to launch our opening exhibition, which will be an exploration of Black British music through amazing objects that we are building a collection of at this very moment. Yes, whenever whenever we talk, either on a podcast, on time team, or sitting around a, a tent in the middle of a field, I always wonder how you find so much time in the day. Uh, you you are the busiest man I know, and yet you still always have a smile on your face, and you always seem so wonderfully positive. Um, but given given all that. I mean, given the amazing career you've had to date, this next question might be a might be a slightly tricky one, but we we, we follow up pride with envy and wonder if there's looking around at the careers of your friends, people who may have inspired you, family members, siblings, is there anything you're particularly envious of in someone else's career? Um, well, I grew up with siblings who are much more talented than me. And so, you know, that um, you know, my brother, he went on, you know. He went on via St. Martin's to run a fantastic, um, you know, fashion house, um, which even though sadly he died uh, uh, two years ago, but his it continues. Um, and he designed from everyone from kind of U2 to Aswad. I mean, he's had support of just just about every single kind of major star. And, uh, and um, he was just talented from... The get-go, there was just there. It wasn't like it wasn't like there was some kind of you know huge trajectory. He was just there from the very first memories I have of him. It was just someone of utter incandescent talent. My sister, who um, she is presently, she's the Chancellor of Coventry University and the chair of the Globe Theatre in London, and um, you know she again just never failed an exam Oxford you know just absolutely brilliant and then my other brother um uh he uh worked in television he was the producer of you know things like Panorama and things like that he was these uh so he so they were all fantastic much older older than me and just brilliant they were like stars and when I say stars I don't mean kind of that in the sense of of them being kind of um um uh you know i mean that they became a kind of constellation that i could follow in the sky that watching them and seeing them helped me to orientate myself in relation to what might be possible and 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 where i was and they've always been gloriously um gloriously supportive as well as being brilliant examples and um just having them as a you know i still kind of have memories of us all when it rained sitting in our 
in our in our living room and them all just doing incredible things around me and that sense of 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 possibility being local you know we lived in tooting in south london but it it felt like the center of the world that this we felt like from our front room we could conquer the universe and that feeling that um, I think our parents engendered is something that I still treasure. And it it charged me in a way that I think I still rely upon, that when I feel, you know, that I want to look for a sense of inspiration, I look back to that living room and that, um, you know, it's a humble kind of in sense it architecturally, but it felt like from there we could do anything. That's so lovely. And it also highlights just that that role of if, if you find the right people that can provide you inspiration or that can act as a role model or as a mentor within your career or, or within your life as a whole, that the, the role that these individuals play in helping your trajectories are, are just incredible. And I, I've no doubt, Gus, that you, you are playing a similar role in many people, other people's lives uh, uh, with your work as well to date. Um so our final question on the podcast is, is a bit more of a fun one. And it's Derek and I have been working quite hard and we've got a um, a working time machine. And uh, we, we Peyton says we don't share it out with too many people. But anyone that comes on the podcast is allowed a free return ticket. Wow. You can go anywhere and anywhere in the world. Um, and we'd just love to know what, what you'd like to do with it. Wow, 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 wow. I know where I'd like to, to go. Um, it's... I think 1907, I think, is a really interesting year. This is the year Freud, he becomes convinced that um, uh, around whole areas that would influence all of his his work in, in psychoanalysis. And he writes his first essays around kind of, you know, uh, 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 around sort of, you know, sexual motivations. Einstein, he begins to formulate around um, um, his thinking on um, on relativity. Um, Henry Ford, that he gets his ideas on um, uh, in, in thinking about um, um, mass market cars, and it feels like there's a moment in which there is a profound gear change. But in West Africa. It's also the moment in which um, um, there is a thought that we have lived under the yoke of empire um, and we understand its promise of, of ed education and opportunity, but we don't feel that that is actually being reflected in the reality. And it's the beginnings of a fundamental shift in West Africa in terms of the intellectual classes beginning to push back. And my own grandfather, that he begins to formulate an idea um, for um, um, a new moment that would galvanise the lawyers, the intellectuals around forcing um, uh, uh, debates around independence. And this is in 1907. And so he begins 
um, to write a series of books. The first, which is around land rights that um, uh, hopes to undermine the basis of colonialism by saying we um, have rights to these lands and that, that the British need to step away. And then he writes this amazing uh, second book, which is about um, uh, the dream of freedom for all Africans and the connective tissue between Africans that will that could offer a kind of intercontinental sense of pride that will connect people back, but also it will give people a sense of what the future could be if people believe that within Africa are the resources, is the intellectual um, potential to carve their own future. And um, it's a beautiful moment. And around the world with all those other things that are happening, it just feels like the beginning of a sense of hope for Africa. And I think, you know, for, for a continent that's been blighted by so many challenges, it's just this kind of brief period in which it feels just so optimistic and so glorious. And I would just love to go back and this tiny group of people who just light the touch paper of something that will build over subsequent uh, generations and decades into what will become an independence movement. And so Ghana, as it would become, it was then the Gold Coast, becomes the first sub-Saharan country to gain independence based on those very ideas that were formulated in that little brief period, whilst around the world, all of these other amazing things, this concatenation of different ideas that were all being formulated. And if you think about it, Freud, Einstein, Henry Ford, all of them were about new kinds of freedom and opportunity. It's just such an exciting thing. And I hope we're in a period in which it feels like we need new ideas. And I would absolutely love it if we get to a moment in which we can, again, think in that kind of global way about how we can harness the possibility of human potential to believe again in our in in our futures but to anchor those beliefs in you know glorious histories and heritage i don't think i can think of a better way to round out the episode than the sentiments you finished on there gus that was such such a lovely use of a time machine um and yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to go there with you. It sounds amazing. It sounds incredible. Um, but as, as, as much as I could listen to you all night, and I genuinely could just keep talking and talking and talking um, and listening, primarily listening, um, we have to wrap the podcast up, I think. So I'm going to take this moment to thank you, Gus, for joining us today. Um, thank you to all of our listeners um, for tuning in. And of course, thank you to our small but proactive cohort of patrons who help us keep um, the podcast online without having to go too deep into our own pockets. So thank you all. 
all. Yeah, just as, again to reiterate a huge thanks to Gus for that. And if anyone wants to find any more of um, Gus's work or any of his media stuff, then there's a fantastic series of episodes on uh, BBC Sounds or the Radio 4 website on his series on called Torn. And it's uh, a really, really great series um, of listening to about different um, fashion, fashion items and clothing items. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good listen. If you want to hear more of Gus, then uh, that's a good place to start. Um, do stay tuned. We've, we've got uh, plenty more podcasts coming. I think next week we've got a meeting with the fantastic Helen Geek, um, followed by Jim Leary, who's a um, who's done excavations on Silbury Hill and Marden Henge, and um, Colin Donnelly after that, who's a medieval specialist from in, in Northern Ireland. So nice, nice variety of speakers. And that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. But for now, Gus, thank you so much for your time this evening. Well, thank you both. You know, I adore you both. And it's just wonderful spending some time with you.